pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Angriement. Hello. Welcome this fortnight. I am Catherine. And I am Michelle. And this is our podcast, Angriement. And on this podcast, every, every two- fortnight. Every fort every fortnight. Yes. It's really sticking. I'm it really is. Gonna We're gonna make, make it happen. <laughs> totally. We bring you a weird thing, a pop culture thing, and a research thing. And then we try to make them all fit together. And so far we've done it every time and nobody is complaining. So I'm going to say we've been successful. Yeah. I will say varying levels of success, but always success. We've never given up and that's what matters. Our okayest effort. Yes. We're okay smart. (laughs) We're okay smart. (laughs) So that's what it is. And here we go. You I don't know who's up. Oh, yeah, it's me. I was going to say, I don't know who goes first, but you keep track. Thank you. Thank I you for your track. for it's, your consistent ability to tell me who needs to talk. I don't keep track of my own life very well, but this I can do. Well, it's the things that matter. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> All right. So my weird thing is, I don't know. I, weird things, the weird thing is always the hardest. Oh. Um, I don't even know if it's that weird of a thing, but it was a short thing, which is what sometimes my weird thing becomes. We're changing weird thing to short thing. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've legitimately wanted to like change weird thing to maybe like just meme or weird, but I guess I could, I can always just shove it in there. Like weird is a amorphous enough. Yeah. I want to turn it into Michelle explains a meme. I was writing an academic, uh, not an essay. I'm working on a book and I'm so tired of people trying to explain memes in academic papers. I would love to hear you explain a meme, but like, I just feel like academics take all the fun out of it sometimes. It's like, when I, to- I've written academic papers about jokes and as I'm doing it, I'm like, oh, I just ruined all of this. I just, I killed it. I <laughs> just stomped the fun. It's like a little d- dissection. Like it's the dissected frog versus a pet frog, right? Not the same. Exactly. Or even the uh, Warner Brothers frog. <laughs> Although he was both. He was both. He got dissected. Was he was dead a lot. And then he came back to life. Oh, okay. Okay. That could be wrong. Could be a fever dream I had. As a I pet. was like, they dissected the <laughs> Warner Brothers frog. Things got dark. <laughs> But I just, I was going to go into it and I ended up writing just like, it is an excellent meme. And because of this, I cannot, I cannot explain it to you. Go look it up. Full stop. Yeah. And that was my out. And it was very great. But I would love it to be Michelle Explains Meme. I had, we had a listener suggest to me that we should add an extra se- section that's just dad jokes. If you ever can't think of a weird thing, just explain a meme or tell me a dad joke. 
Maybe it can be like a like a rotating, like we have to spin a wheel to see which one is the first category. Like, I'm like, Ooh. what does this need to be this week? Yeah. All right. Oh, I like that. Uh, really keep us on our toes. Yeah. Less preparation <laughs> from the little we already do. All right. So my weird thing, such as it is, is I was listening to an interview with Priya Parker um, on Krista Tippett's podcast on Bean, which is I enjoy it. It's a it can sometimes get a little like we're being very intentionally deep right now for me, which sometimes is just not the the mood I'm in for pot. Like I, obviously you're listening to my podcast and it is not, not the like, let's all sit in our, yeah. Let's take it down. I don't think I've ever went, oh, Michelle. Yeah. 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 Uh, It reminds me of when I, I used to work at Dairy Queen and when I had to mop the floors at night after we had closed the, like, so <laughs> this, this is my telling this story. Now. <laughs> so I I uh, I would have to mop the floors, but as long as the doors were still open, like people technically could still come in, we had to only play the music that the owners would allow us to play, which was like the Alice station. Do you do you remember this? Because we grew up the same. <gasps> yeah. And, and so at night it was like Delilah. This, does this ring any bells? Yes, right. It does. <laughs> that was a Proustian Madeline bite. <laughs> and it was like this like soft rock. And then Delilah would come on and tell you gentle things about the human condition and how if you're missing someone tonight, it's okay. Here's a song for that, right? Like, and <laughs> just like mopping all this like gross ice cream that the kids had smeared all over the floor. Um, and I'm like, I don't want, I don't want to <laughs> listen to you, Delilah. Um, <laughs> and then once we locked the doors, we were allowed to put on whatever music we wanted. So it was like as soon as it hit 10 o'clock or whatever, there was this literal switch where you're like click, and it's like loud. So I was listening to On Being with Krista Tippett, which is a podcast that I enjoy. I just have to kind of like be in the right headspace for it. Cause it, so I just wanted to warn, just leave that caveat so that you, if you listen to it and you're like, Oh, this is not for me. You just have to be in the right, right space for it. Anyway, I was in the right space for it and I was listening to it. And it was an interview with Priya Parker, who is a conflict resolution specialist, especially focused on group conflict resolution, but who has gotten a lot of attention for a book that's the art of gathering. And so she does gathering research, like research on what does it mean together and um, how do we like come together. And she defines a gathering as any group of three or more people who have come together on purpose to an event with the beginning, a middle, and an end. And so, um, but, and one of the most interesting things that she said when she was talking about, she said that a gathering is always political. And, you know, Krista Tippett was like, even a six-year-old's birthday party? She's like, especially a six-year-old's birthday party. (laughs) And it was just this really interesting conversation about like, how do you decide who to invite? And when you're deciding who to invite, what you're ultimately deciding is what are you trying to accomplish? And that she was like, when she was talking to people and like trying to get to the heart of that, they were like, oh, well, you know, I'm trying to be friendly. I'm trying to, uh, you know, meet my neighbors. And she just like kept picking away at it. And it would get like this kind of desperate, like, I want my kids to grow up in a place where they know their neighbors and feel safe. And like, so that, like the, the, these core things for like why we were gathering were kind of these raw emotional like pillars. And I, that was interesting. But my weird thing is just very specifically and very short, 
that Priya Parker used to have a Google alert, Google news alert for the word gather because it was used so infrequently that she could literally like have a Google news alert and it wouldn't overwhelm her. But then the pandemic hit and the word gather was everywhere. She was like, oh gosh, like how do I? And so it was just uh, really interesting, like how that word went from something that we very rarely used to something that was in headlines all around the world. Right. And I just Mm. thought that was weird that the, like that individual word, and it only came up because it was like, don't you dare gather their gatherings are outlawed. Like, Oh, that's so, that's so like interesting in terms of like discourse about what can be seen and be said. And we only raise that word up into discourse once it's outlawed and illegal. That's so Foucaultian. That like we only like maybe give name to something or use it when we're banning it visible when we are making it illegal. Like that double bind trap of if you are visible, you can have rights, but then we can make you illegal. Which I think fits well with some of the other points she was making that like our gatherings. So she basically says like we're not gathering right because we are not uh, thinking about it deeply enough. Like we're just going through a perfunctory like it is this, like we use templates, right? We are having a meeting. That means someone needs to order the bagels and someone needs to make the uh, agenda and someone needs to print the copies. And like, so our, our stakes are like predetermined for us and we don't have to think about them and we don't have to consider our responsibilities. And they just all like, she's like, that's not what a gathering should do. Like we're, we're taking a real kind of lazy template based methodology to our gatherings. And so I wonder if part of the reason that we didn't use the word often is because we were operating on autopilot so much that you don't even need to talk about it in those terms because it's like, yeah. Okay. My weird thing, which made me very excited. And then it made me very sad is have I told you Michelle, because I'm sure I have about the Manitou Emma Crawford Coffin races. Coffin races. I don't, I think, I feel like I would remember this. When I first moved to Colorado Springs, before I moved to Colorado Springs, when I got the job that took me to Colorado Springs, I was like, well, what is in this town I'm moving to? One of the first things I found was the city of Manitou, which is basically Colorado Springs, they're very close, has an annual coffin race. And I was so excited. And then, I don't know, life happens, things happen. I've never attended the coffin race. I'm like, well, this year I'm going to do it. They're not doing it this year. Is it because of COVID? You would think, but they are having a major festival, which includes a hearse parade and an Emma Crawford costume contest. So it's not that they're not gathering. Who who is Emma Crawford? Oh, I'll tell you. Oh, okay. Okay. I just wasn't sure if I was supposed to know and was missing a key piece of information. Okay. So... Basically, the coffin races, if you've ever heard of like the Red Bull um, race where you have to make a car and you push it off a cliff or something, it's not. No, you haven't. You're, <laughs> so I'm, like, you're saying a lot of things as if they're just known entities. And <laughs> I, I am. knows about the Red Bull race. I don't know where it happens, but Red Bull, the energy. Red drink, Bull, like the energy. Oh, because it gives you yeah. wings. Okay. All right. Yeah. Wings. I'm, I'm something where people make crazy cars and they push them off a cliff and everyone dresses up really weird. This is like that in that it is a um, fantastical vehicle and everyone dresses up and it's a big thing. But instead of um, off a cliff, it's down the street, down a hill, like a hilled street. 
and it is coffins. You have to make coffins, decorate coffins, put wheels somehow on a coffin-like thing, and you have four pallbearers. It can be teams of four, and it's just whoever can make it down in their coffin fastest. And that's so that's what the coffin race is. It is a race of, of coffins. Not a race of coffins, like coffin people, but you know what I mean. Ra- yeah. Racing coffins. And so it happens in Manitou Springs every year, not this year. And it is in honor of Emma Crawford. So other events around Emma Crawford happen. There's an Emma Crawford costume contest, etc. And so I want to just read a quick thing. Emma Crawford is a recognizable name in the Pikes Peak region today. Since 1995, Manitou Springs has been holding the annual Emma Crawford Coffin Race and Parade. And Emma still supposedly haunts the area, even though her coffin washed away years after her burial. So who is Emma Crawford? Why do we have a coffin race in her honor? Right, right. Lots of people have died. We don't put coffins down the street for all of them. No. So so that's my weird thing that there is an annual coffin race, which I think is pretty weird. And it's very Halloween-y. It always happens around Halloween and we're approaching that. But Emma Crawford is a woman who was born in the 1830s. She moved to Manitou Springs because of her ill health. And so Colorado Springs, Manitou Springs, Colorado at large is somewhere where a lot of people who are kind of infirmed in various ways would come. Um, the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs was largely like for tuberculosis patients. And the architecture of the Springs is really interesting because most houses have smaller houses behind them or a garage-like structure, which a lot of times people call them lungers because you would rent them out to people who came in the summer who wanted to help their lungs because the very dry, dry, hot, hot, high altitude air is good for your lungs, which I can attest to. Like it's been very good and I have breathing problems. Anyway, she came to the springs because of ill health. Manitou Springs also has um, a lot of natural springs. So drinking that water is like helpful. And so her family was full of spiritualists. They were very into spiritualism, which at the time, you know, pretty problematically, involved a lot of, you would have a Native American spirit guide. So one day Emma said that her Native American spirit guide told her to climb this mountain. And so she did, and everyone's like, too sick, you can't do it. But she said she climbed it and she tied her shirt or her scarf around the tree she got to. And no one believed her because it was way high up in the mountain. She was too sick, she couldn't do it. But then someone went and saw it and they said, oh, your your magical dead spirit guide helped you do that. Amazing. But eventually she died because of her illnesses and they decided they wanted to bury her on that mountain. And due to various things, rebuilding, erosion, they had to move her body. Eventually the coffin, this is, this might be a bit, hyperbolic but her her coffin did have to be moved a lot and the story goes whether it's totally true or not that it just slid down into town one day (laughs) the coffin and so that is what the coffin race celebrates so she she didn't get to know any of this fame and adoration 
in her yeah. in her lifetime. No. Didn't know about it. She was just a someone who had a conv- come to convalesce in the springs and, and climb a mountain once. Climbed a mountain with a ghost and then her coffin came back up and slid down a hill. And that that's it. Well, okay then. <laughs> but it's a fun event. Really it started in 1995, largely, you know, they wanted a way to boost tourism to the area. And I think a coffin race is a great way to do that. It's very unique. Can't get yeah. it anywhere else that I know of. So, yeah. Exactly. Maybe we can go sometime. I mean, we have to climb the incline. Like we always yeah. talked about climbing the incline. COVID messed up a lot. COVID destroyed so many plans. So many plans. What else do we have to do? We have to do demolition derby. That's you, right? That loves those. I love the demo derby. <laughs> Unapologetically and unironically, I love a demolition derby. I love that. Put on the list. Crawford race, demo derby. Done. But that's it. That's my weird thing. So let's move on to pop culture. Pop culture. Um, So I have thinly wrapped my pop culture in a veneer of a larger topic but it's really just an excuse for me to rant about that movie I texted you about. (laughs) Nice. Nice. So I um, can tell you were like, don't watch it, but Oh, I have to talk about it. I I mean, I just have like, I, you cursed, you don't curse in texts. Yeah. Yeah. It It was, was I was very irritated by it. So, okay. And, And I don't just want like, I think it's mean to just rag on things. Like, I, I, typically, if I don't like something, I'm like, okay, fine. I just didn't like it, right? I don't need to, like, bash something. It wasn't for me. Right, right. And, like, you know, not everything is for everybody. That's fine. If somebody put the effort and time into creating it, I don't want to, you know, crap all over their dreams. But this movie just bugged me. So it's called Brand New Old Love, and it is a just kind of dumb romantic comedy, right? Um, I'm going to spoil it fully because I don't want any of you to watch it. So <laughs> <laughs> spoilers, spoilers. This is a shame. The the main actress in it, I really like her. So so the acting was okay. Like they did fine. Like they it wasn't their fault. I don't blame them. And I saw that she is in a romantic comedy with the actor who plays Cheaty from The Good Place. Mm-hmm. Um so I have to give it some time to get the taste of this one out of my mouth before I try that. But I might I might watch that one. But anyway. So it's called Brand New Old Love, which is a silly romantic comedy. I needed something kind of mindless, but that I could have on in the background while I was doing like some cleaning and I wanted to just sort of like be able to be entertained, but not have to be very involved. And it did not deliver on that front because it angered me so much that I was involved in a different way. <laughs> so <laughs> the plot of this movie is pretty simple. It is that there are these two 30-year-olds whose lives are not going well and because of that, they both ended up back in their hometown where they run into each other for the first time in years. They were very good friends when they were teenagers. And they had said that if they weren't married when they were 30, they would get married. Cause that's like, you know, the thing that you say when you're teens and you have a, a friendship with, a, I mean, typically if you have a friendship with somebody of the opposite sex, then at some point you're like, well, we'll get married if we, I mean, I, I made that pact with somebody. I remember I made that pact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So like that thing. Right. And so, um, and so then they get drunk and they do it. They like go and get married and 
very drunkenly married. And that all happens pretty early in the movie. And then they move. I went and watched the trailer after you said this movie was so terrible. That happens in the trailer. Yeah. So, so far, no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers so far. Um, So they move back to his apartment in Los Angeles. And he um, has a roommate that he failed to tell her about that lives in the living room. So they really only have his bedroom. He's like, don't worry. It's the one bedroom, but I have the bedroom. Fails to tell her that the only bathroom in the house is inside of his bedroom. So like, there's just so like the guy's like literally crawling over them while they're in bed to get to the bathroom. So he's obviously just living like, you know, a very broke teenager. And there's this very, like he has never grown up. Right. And it's very, very hit hit you over the head with it. He has not grown up. He has not grown up. He has not grown up. And she, meanwhile, has also kind of not grown up and is sort of regressing. Like she starts like dyeing her hair pink and like they're, they're like going to take a car and go on a joy where they steal stuff from a gas station. Like, it's just, it's very much like we're reliving our glory days of being 16 or whatever, which fine, fine. Like I'm, I'm not even, I was, I was still, I was like, okay, but what are we, where are we going with this? Like, these we just have two people who are struggling with maturity and adulthood who are now married so that they can struggle together like i just am not i'm not really understanding what what the point is going to take us and it was also just really disjointed like the um the editing was really difficult it wasn't difficult to follow it was just really incoherent like things would just ha- like it would be like, oh, well, we need this next thing to happen. So we'll just jump to that. Like, it was just very like, here's a thing. Here's a thing. Here's a thing. And um, so ultimately, they there's this theme running through it of like, she says, she says that people can change. And he's like, people don't ever really change. They just become more of who they always were or whatever, right? Like, that's the big tension at the center of all of this. And at the end, he almost kills her because he feeds her tomatoes, even though she's deathly allergic to tomatoes and he forgot. And so while she's like, she leaves him, because she's like, I haven't asked for much, but I ask you to at least not kill me. And it was all very just weird. And um, her ex-husband, who she hadn't really even told him about, comes back into the picture and he's like a really wealthy doctor and he clearly still wants her. And so she's like, has to make this choice about like, is she going to go back to that life that obviously it was a much more mature life. And you see her have like dinner at one point with some of her friends and they are like, it physically hurt to watch them. They were all like, Oh, you, you need to, you need to like start getting some Botox because, um, you know, you're hitting that age and look, you just got, you got these little lines up here. And like, it just, it was just like the the, caricatures of the most shallow, 30 somethings like it was just terrible and then so the husband comes back and it and she's like he's like are you going to come back home with me she's like I don't know maybe I maybe I'm going to go to like India and find myself like and she's being a little like wink wink not you know like because that's what that's what white women like me do with their privilege or whatever and I think almost even says that line for line and he's like oh okay well I could I could go with you and and he's like or not or you could go yourself I'll pay for it and like just like seems like he's trying to be a supportive guy of like, do what you need to do, but then come home. Okay. Um, and so apparently we're supposed to really hate him for that is, was the message that I like, what a jerk. Um, and but so, the people at dinner weren't his friends, right? They were her friends. Right. Right. And so he, <laughs> it, it, 
So he wakes up and she's not there and she's left him a note that just says people don't cha- or, people don't change and comes back to the guy that is, I guess, technically still her husband from their drunken wedding. And is like, so I don't think I have a husband anymore and I don't have a job and I don't have a place to live. Could I crash here while I figure it out? And like, that's the end of the movie. What? (laughs) So the thing that I have decided to try to wrap it up in to make it not just Michelle rants about this movie she didn't like, is that really a pop culture thing? Is that- Movies are pop culture. It it is, but I I felt like that was a little bit- cheap right okay there's just this this trope of the like loser millennial that it and I'm not even saying that you can't do it but it just feels so lazy and also just does not reflect a reality that I know like I am the age of these people that they are portraying and I just I want to like who is writing them like who right like like, a huge trope of like millennial goes back to their small town they are a failure they sleep on the couch they stay on the couch all the time there's so many movies like that and, well, and, and I, most of them are a little low budget like this i don't know if this is low budget but they have that feel to where the editing isn't tight not everyone's doing their best work well in like the gilmore girls reboot was just i mean it it didn't even make sense because of that like they just and, but it felt like it was like, ha we know what's going on. And I'm just like, wait, based on what? Like, where is this information about this being how the world works coming from? Because, I mean, there is a lot of, of reflection on like, oh, millennials are having trouble buying a home or millennials don't want to get married because they don't want the financial, like the, the finances aren't working out. Like, but it's not because they're not trying Wait, or don't on the couch all the time or have given up or aren't working jo- like I just it just does not reflect any reality that I have seen in any of my peers across spectrums like you know from just people that I know that I went to high school with people that I know that I went to college with people like just all across the spectrum it does not reflect a reality that I know like is, is, is this a reality that I'm just disconnected this? from it feels like gen x Gen X is writing uh, writing us. Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned that, but the, it kind of the scene that I was just describing, where it's like, oh, we're supposed to hate this guy. Uh, it reminds me a little of Reality Bites, and <laughs> you're supposed to dislike. Is it is it Ben Stiller? Ben, ben Stiller, and I'm like, but he he's but fine. <laughs> that's fascinating because there's a really good podcast called Decoder Ring, which I love. And they had a whole episode on like selling out and how selling out does not exist as a concept anymore, really, right? This idea of a certain kind of authenticity and selling out doesn't exist. And they talked to the person that wrote, and I think directed, I'm not sure, but the main person behind Reality Bites. And she's like, yeah, um, he, I I really changed my mind on everything about that. And (laughs) he was just trying to help her get her movie done. And she was talking about how she had made her movie Reality Bites and then had to go promote it. And she was like, no, man, I'm not going to promote it because that would be selling out. And she's like, what were we thinking? Because we made a product, we had to sell it. Yeah, yeah. So, I, but I will say that the one place where I've seen this trope that did it well, and I think it was because it was, spinning off of it and like inverting it was promising young woman. Right. Cause like that is. Yes. Yes. 
because it's like a oh, reason she's laying on the couch yeah. and went back home. It's a very real reason. Ooh, I like that compare good good pop culture elevation there, Michelle. I I tried because it, this pop culture started out as I'm really angry about this movie for a reason I can't quite explain. Let me yell about also- it. So I guess my pop culture thing is the loser millennial trope without any traction, right? Like just as if that is just a well, that's a thing. So he throw it in, and I'm like, you got to do something with it. Like I yeah. I don't believe you that these people are just floating through life with no connections or ambition or purpose or meaning without some other force making that happen, right? Like just the fact that they exist and are between this age and this age is not enough. Like you're going to have to do more. Step it up. Step it up. Exactly. If you want these characters to be miserable, you give them some misery. So I had a lot of trouble with pop culture this week because there was just so much stuff I want to talk about. It was Fat Bear Week, which I'm always very into. And I'm not talking about that. Okay, good. Because it <laughs> might make an appearance at a later <gasps> segment. That would make me very happy because I love <laughs> Fat Bear Week. And even last year when we were doing the podcast, I meant to talk about it and I missed it. And I just, it's over now and it would be too late anyway. And then there was the whole, who's the bad art friend article, which I don't know if you've read. <gasps> Michelle, go read it right now. I'm going to hang up on you and you have to go read it. That'll be Is fun it? for our listeners. I hate that. <laughs> we're just going to be very quiet as Michelle reads it. I really almost chose it. All this to say there is an article going around from the New York Times called like the bad art friend or who's the bad art friend. But I will leave that for you to discover. Okay. okay. That'll be a thing that I have to deal with on my own. Yeah. I just read the book, The Plot, which is a great book. It's so good. Um, And having just read that, which is about, this doesn't spoil anything, but it's about a, a writing teacher and author who's kind of failed author that in some ways steals, but not really the plot of someone else's book. And it goes very into like, what is it to write fiction? And you're always writing from life. And so anyway, but that's not my pop culture because this is also what I chose is also something that I think everyone talked about. My little Instagram circle of the world, my little social media corner, which was last week, a fortnight ago at this point, Grimes. Do you know Grimes? Yes. Um, was basically in a photo shoot. I, I saw a video from it and she was posing. She did not get caught on the street. She was, she was doing this very purposefully. The paparazzi were after her. And so there are all these paparazzi photos of Grimes reading the Communist Manifesto. And that's my pop culture. Have you seen these photos? I did not. So I, all I saw, I thought, because they're they're separated now, right? Like that's, I saw yes. that so she, she and Elon and- Musk have announced their separation. And um, was it, who, what, what musician was it that said that they trapped her in their house? Oh, it was. Um, Azalea Banks? Azalea Banks, yeah. Yeah, and I saw that Azalea Banks was, tweeted her and was like, cool, can we finally get together and make that collab now then? Yes. Yes. That's the that's the extent of my knowledge on the grime. So she was reading the communist manifesto in positions where she could be easily photographed. (laughs) Very easy. So it's so and there's like half a dozen of these. I found the video. My husband was like, No, the paparazzi just stopped her. It's not, it's not her fault. 
but you watch the video and she's like turning the pages backwards. She's not, she's not reading it. She sits down for a while. The world is Grimes's playground. And this is her prop for the week, which is the communist manifesto. And yeah, so she recently split with Elon Musk and then her next big publicity thing. And he's like the world's richest man, right? And then she shows up in an outfit that is very interesting. It's kind of futuristic. It's yeah. kind of cyborg, cyborg, um, pop, like cyborg punk. Steampunky kind of. Steampunky. That's what I was trying to think of. Thank you. She has like a large hooded robe and like leggings. Anyway. Tall so black boots. Tall black. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot of look. I found it to be very interesting. I can't put my finger on why. I mean, I really like Grimes's music and a lot of people are very invested in how hard she made it to like her music after she got involved with Elon Musk. And I thought maybe she would become a little less uh, obnoxious after splitting with him, but no, clearly not. And so I want to read the caption she put because she put one of the paparazzi photos up on her Instagram and she said, I was really stressed when paparazzi wouldn't stop following me this week. But then I realized it was an opportunity to troll. I swear this headline, oh my God, I'm dead. Full disclosure, I'm still living with E, which I guess is Elon Musk, and I'm not a communist. Although there are some very smart ideas in this book. But personally, I'm more interested in a radical decentralized UBI, UBI that I think could potentially be achieved through crypto and gaming. But I haven't ironed that idea out enough yet to explain it. Regardless, my opinions on politics are difficult to describe because the political systems that inspire me the most have not yet been implemented. Stay tuned, everybody. So what is a UBI? A universal basic income. Universal basic income. I should know that. Yeah, I I like that idea, but I also... Anyway... it's just, I mean, it's the futurist argument, right? Like it's yeah. not, it's not nearly as edgy or uninvented as she's pretending it is. It's. Oh it's, yeah. She's it, trying. I think she is definitely like trying to be edgy here. This yeah, is I mean, some edgelord BS. Like it is an established perspective that like tech, tech will save us all and tech will provide enough for all of us. And like, I just. She's being about as edgy as Andrew Yang right now. Oh, I would love to see Andrew Yang in that outfit, reading the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> but, um, so, so her argument is that she was out and they wouldn't leave her alone. So, so she, she then took the opportunity. To, so she just carries around the Communist Manifesto in case she needs an opportunity. To, Maybe, like, man. It's all What other good. books are in there? Is there like a, you know, what, what's the right scene for today? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But like a Mary Poppins style troll bag. What do I? What props do I need today? Book do we, or just any prop? Yeah. Although it does, it made me think of the long history of um, celebrities pretending to read books for the paparazzi. Like Paris Hilton once was out eating alone and had the art of war. There's a very famous paparazzi picture of Snooky. She's on a children's playground looking really 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 sad she's like she's sitting on one of those 
what are those toys, those children's toys that are like springy? Um, oh, they look like animals? Yeah. And so she's sitting on one of those and she's reading the book Power. It's like a wild photo. I just need to hold it up to show you. Oh, yeah, she is. I'm like a little rocking horse style. Yeah, she's sitting on the playground horse reading Power. Um, this isn't, although I will say it made me think of a really, really good episode of the podcast, which is no longer with us, sadly, Mystery Show. Oh, it's so good. With Shirley Kind did it. And every week she would solve a mystery. Like one week someone rented a movie and when they went to return it to the video store, the video store was gone and they just couldn't find it. And she has to solve that mystery. And then it reminded me of a really good episode where a friend of hers who was an author who wrote a book and this was like not a well-known book. This was a book that when the author had to go like buy a copy at the store to put into grant applications, couldn't buy it, couldn't find it anywhere. Um, And basically a photo of Britney Spears doing this paparazzi thing appeared holding this book, reading it, then sales skyrocketed. And she's like, how did Britney Spears get my book that no one has read? And they spend a whole episode trying to figure that out. And it's so great. So I'm very, I like, I like celebrities reading or not reading for paparazzi. This isn't the first time Grimes has talked about communism or talked to communists. She's very into it. She wants, um, she said in a TikTok video like months ago, I have a proposition for the communists. Typically, most of the communists I know are not big fans of AI. But if you think about it, AI is actually the fastest path to communism. If implemented correctly, AI could theoretically solve for abundance. Like we could totally get to a situation where nobody has to work. Everybody's provided for with a comfortable state of being. Ultimately, it could bring the world as close to, as possible to genuine equality. So how, basically, how far are you into that second Hank Green book? <laughs> I'm only 40 pages. Okay. So is this, is Grimes, is, is Grimes not reading the Communist Manifesto, but she is reading Hank Green? Do you no, think? no, no. She needs to read Hank Green. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the obvious opposite. Yes. Okay. Research time. Research time. So my research does begin with Fat Bear Week, which is over. I'm so glad. Um, Glad But we... Fat Bear Week, um, for those of you who do not know, is an event that happens around this time of year each year when the bears have to fatten up because they're going to go into hibernation and people get to vote. A lot of people participate online for the fattest bear. They're supposed to try to pick the biggest bear. Um but some people just pick the cutest bear, however you make your own judgments to vote for. So, um, but we don't actually know how fat the bears are because it would probably be detrimental to the humans. I never thought about this. To go in and actually weigh the bears until Joel Cusick, who had a tool, I hope I am pronouncing this right, a terrestrial LIDAR scanner that is typically used to measure distance and other measurements with lasers used in civil engineering. And he had one, I don't know why. And he was like, 
I bet I could use this to measure the surface volume of a fat bear. And here is a quote from Joel Cusick talking about his work. He said, I got a laser return from the bud of Otis, one of the most famous brown bears up there. I thought, wow, this just might work. Indeed, it did. So he has been measuring the bears with his laser scanners. And um, it's real convenient because during this time, the bears are holding still for long periods of time because they're hunting for salmon. And so as long as they can get the right angle, they can get a good measurement. It only takes like three to 11 seconds to scan the bear. And um, so they basically, their job is just kind of just stand there and wait and be patient until they can get the right shot so they can get the measurement. And this is a quote from the article that I'll link in the show notes that said his work confirmed that people did indeed vote for the fattest bear last year, bear 747. The bears are numbered by the park for research purposes. The winner's volume was 22.6 cubic feet or 1,416 pounds compared to the runners up who trailed the aptly named 747 at 1,250 pounds, bear 32 or chunk and 1,212 pound bear 151 or Walker. And so people did correctly identify the fattest of the fat bears, um, at least according to this GIS measurement system that we're using to judge our bears. We do not know about this year's bears because they were not able to be scanned because of COVID. This COVID ruins everything. But or this things is- just taken from us, coffins and bear masks. This is not the end of my research. This was just the jumping off point for it. So my research oh, is I, about- I've edited enough of these podcasts to know you're only getting started. That would that would be, research is not a short thing. Research is a long thing. Research is a long thing. My research is about non-invasive wildlife observations. And so um, this technique to measure the bears is being lauded as this non-invasive way to gather more data for wildlife observations. Because I mean, fat bear week is a lot of fun for us watching, but for the researchers of the bears, it is important to kind of measure the health, like it keeps track of the health of the bear population and is data that they can compare from year to year. And so this is really helpful for that work. And um, so I was looking up some stuff about non-invasive wildlife observations in general. And I found an article, I'm going to pull it up so I make sure that I am giving the full title. This is called Towards More Compassionate Wildlife Research Through the Three R's Principles, Moving from Invasive to Non-Invasive Methods by Miriam A. Zimanova. And so this is an article about how we need to just do a better job of researching wildlife without using invasive procedures. And here's a quote from that article. Wildlife research may then result in a fundamental conflict between individual animal welfare and the welfare of the population or ecosystem, which could be significantly reduced if non-invasive research practices were more broadly implemented. So most of the people who are researching wildlife care deeply about that wildlife and don't like they want to protect the species they want to you know they they don't want to harm the animals, but a lot of the ways that we research animals in order to help preserve them ultimately causes harm. And, and she said that it's not just about like an ethical thing. It's also that for data accuracy, like pain and distress will often um, mess up the data because an animal that's in pain or distress does not have the same output as an animal that isn't. And so we don't always know that our readings are accurate. And so she talked about the three R's method, and she has a nice little uh, Venn diagram of them overlapping. And the three R's are replacement, reduction, and refinement. And so things under replacement 
are like using archived tissue samples instead of going and getting fresh one or using feces for DNA and diet analysis instead of having to get anything from a live specimen, um, using footprints, natural markings. So like replacing anything that you would have to get the animal itself from, like get directly from the animal and instead get it from, you know, either records that are already held or a, a way that is that they have discarded it and are not using it anymore. Reduction is my favorite because it's all about just planning better. Like it's like, just do a better job before you go do studies so that you don't have to duplicate. So like one of them is proper literature review to avoid duplication. Like don't go mess with animals if somebody's already messed with those animals, right? Um, Individual animals or samples used for multiple purposes collaborate with other teams, right? So if you have to capture an animal, make sure you've collaborated with other teams so that you can all use that data instead yeah. of having to capture multiple animals, right? Um, so it's just it was just like basically plan better, and I, I liked that because I am a planner and I like yeah I like when people are told to plan better. Um, <laughs> and then uh, refinement is just like you know changing the methods that you're currently using, like um, anesthesia instead of having to kill an animal or minimal restraint or make better traps, those sorts of things. And then there's some overlap between these, like for instance, refinement and replacement could be like saliva and hair or feathers because there's some traps that could grab hair when an animal walks by in a way that wouldn't like cause them distress. And so then that could be a way to collect without having to actually interact with the animal. Um, And in the center of all of it is proper training of researchers and assistants. So like training becomes like the key element of, of um, treating animals better. So then I also found an article called Defining Non-Invasive Approaches for Sampling of Vertebrates by Jonathan N. Pauly and few other people. And um, this is a quote from that article. When researchers claim to use non-invasive sampling, do their fellow biologists and the public have a common perception of the interaction between a researcher and a subject? And their basic argument is the term non-invasive has no meaning. Like people have just started throwing around like, oh yeah, we used a non-invasive method. And they're like, that doesn't have a scientific meaning. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you mean when you're saying you're being non-invasive? And that they actually, when they went and looked at a lot of these studies that were saying they were non-invasive, they were not. And so they have defined non-invasive as, go to their article, non-invasive is animals are unaware of samplings and therefore are unaffected by it, unperceived, or animals are unrestrained and do not exhibit a chronic or severe stress response or experience reduction in survival or production. And they give examples like do using aerial photography, hair traps, like we were mentioning from the other article, um, scat collection, so discarded stuff, camera traps, track plates. So like plates that are like, that can track where the animals go, but the animals oh, don't yeah. know that you're there. And they said that even like people hiding in a blind is invasive because if the animals see you or smell you, it's stressful. Yeah. And so that non-invasive has a real high threshold by their definition. And then the next on the level would be non-lethal where the animals experience capture restraint and um, samples or managements are collected and then the animals released. And then lethal, where the animals are either immediately euthanized or euthanized following any procedures. And then there's post-lethal, where they like basically use animal samples that have been killed by hunters or trappers or museum mm-hmm. collect- collections, or even if they've been hit by a car or found in the field, and, like using that as an opportunity to gather data while they can. And so I guess my research thing is just that like I hadn't spent much time thinking about I, I think the definition of the word part is what's so interesting to me. Like 
that you can just throw around the word non-invasive and make it seem like your research is ethical and has had that consideration, but without there being some standardized, no, this is what it means to be non-invasive and you're not meeting that standard we can't really hold anybody accountable for that. Um, it reminds me of like the debates about like, what does it mean to say something's organic? And it mostly is just about to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Organic. And yeah. So yeah, there is some stuff about non-invasive animal observations. That makes me think, have you ever heard of the show spy in the wild? No, your research was much smarter. And now I'm going to say something stupid about television, which I feel like is what I do. But um, it was on, it's a British show and it was on a lot when I lived in Australia. And it's basically, they spend a lot, it's a nature show and they spend a lot of money on surprisingly not good. Sometimes the show is really funny to watch because they're so bad, but um, animatronics. And they make animatronics that look like the animals they're studying oftentimes the the offspring or the babies of that animal and it has cameras in it and so they'll just like let this animatronic like bear or animatronic cheetah or animatronic penguin off amongst the other penguins or whatever and they say right it's it's to make it possible the most interactive documentary of these animals that to capture behavior no animal would do if there was a human or even a hidden camera there. And it's a, <laughs> it, it often ends up looking really stupid. Yeah, like they think the animals, animals can't tell that there's like a robot imposter. Like, right. I feel like animals are fairly perceptive. Like the smell isn't there. Most episodes I saw at least end with the animals realize it's a spy in their midst. They destroy. <laughs> That's what I was like. We tore that. We, we tore that apart immediately. Right. It like looks terrific. It's this really yeah. clumsy little baby orangutan being stomped and thrashed. <laughs> <laughs> so it probably oh. does not meet the threshold for non-invasive. Don't think it would at all. They say it's for education and being non-invasive, but I think it's just to get a wild, wild BBC show up there. I highly recommend it, though, Spy in the Wild. But yeah, that's it reminds me a lot when you were talking about the pain we have to, for animals. We need to define these things and just have a set uh, plan. It's just planning. Planning. It's all planning. Planning, implementing research. Talking like, to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And then like animals don't have to die for what does amount to nothing. If there's like a paper already published on it. I like that. I mean, I don't like animals dying (laughs) if we're not doing it. Okay. Okay. My research, again, this is a little pop culture and I twisted it into research because I feel like I have to defend these things as a as an art historian that does contemporary art, whenever the newest thing of the week that everyone goes, art's so crazy, it's stupid. Can you believe it? Um, oh, oh, yeah. I know. I, I think like I know I where this one's heading. So yeah, the uh, the take the money and run art. Yes. Book. So if you haven't heard about it, as I'm glad you have, Michelle, um, a Danish artist named Jens Hanning, who is known... Basically, he was asked to do a new artwork 
by the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Alberg. I'm not saying that right, Denmark. And they wanted him to recreate, to give new life to an older piece that he was known for, which was called an average Danish annual income and an average Austrian annual income. And those two pieces used actual money to illustrate the average incomes, as the title says, of the respective countries. And so basically he put, I think it was about $84,000 total into kind of framed it in this artistically pleasing way. And so the museum said, do that again. And instead of creating the piece he'd been commissioned to make, Hunning gave the museum two blank canvases and said the title of the work is Take the Money and Run. So when they opened that up, they opened the crates that he had shipped them containing the work to find these blank canvases, zero dollars inside. They were upset, confused. But the artist says that it is about um, playing with the power systems of the gallery, playing with the art market, and testing those social limits, societal structures, yada, yada, yada. His statement was, everyone would like to have more money. And in our society, work industries are valued differently. The artwork is essentially about the working conditions of artists. It's a statement saying that we also have the responsibility of questioning the structures that we're a part of. And if these structures are completely unreasonable, we must break with them. It can be your marriage, your work, it can be any type of societal structure. So I guess he decided that this societal structure that he is a part of, i.e. art market, art world, was unreasonable and he broke with it. But I don't really think he did, right? This is a very, I think it's funny. He titled it Take the Money and Run. I mean, he certainly got more attention than he would have by doing the thing they had asked him to do. So if they, if they yeah, want is people talking about the topic, like this was a bigger success in that way. Oh yeah, this is probably gonna, this work, mark my words, will be more valuable than that other work. This is very much shredded Banksy. That The shredded Banksy just went back to auction and is worth so much more than it was bought for. That's how it goes. So the notoriety of this adds value to it. He did them a favor. Um, his, he had a contract with the museum. And it's why I don't think they're going to come after him. He did have a contract with the museum that stated the $84,000 is not his. And it's to be returned to the Kunstmuseum at the close of the exhibit. But he says he has no intention of giving the money back. Quote, of course I will not pay it back. The work is that I took the money and I will not give it back. <laughs> That's the art. Take the money and run. So he says it's unlikely that the work will become a series. And I like this statement. If someone has too much money, they might want to give it away. I'm open to invitations. <laughs> so <laughs> it really does come down to, it, it, it's oversimplified. It, I do like this work. I think it is funny that basically he got some level of acclaim for framing money and saying conceptually, this is, look at this, look at this. This is what someone makes in a year on average. But conceptually, I think this is much funnier because it, it does play with the structures of a museum, that a museum has that much money to just give to him and say, we trust you. 
and by breaking that trust. But yeah, in, invariably he made it more valuable, I'm sure. So the, the museum's not losing out. And the one thing the art market does is protect itself, really. It will, it will make anything value. I love teaching this. I've talked about it here before, but it will find a way to just reify value into things. And so my research isn't to defend that work. I would rather defend um, the banana by Maurizio Catalan. I actually love that work. And we'll talk about that all day. That is now owned by, uh, anyway, I won't talk about it all day now, but I love it. Someday, not just Someday. not this day. This is not at the level of the banana work, but he says I'm questioning structures, the art world, especially gallery structures, power of the art market. And I think at the end of the day, he's only upholding that. I do want to talk about an artist that I will say I heard about last week. I went to a talk by um, named Jack Halberstam, who I love. I was talking to you about this the whole, for so long that I got to go meet Jack Halberstam and have dinner with him and hear us talk. And he mentioned offhandedly this artist in the talk and I looked him up and I've been doing some research on him. So when I heard about Take the Money and Run, I said, well, this is someone who is actually doing what the Danish artist says he is doing. It's almost impossible. Like I said, the art world loves to put value on things. So one of the hardest things in the world, I think, would to be an acclaimed artist and find a way to make your art not worth that value, to not give that value over to the institution. How do you do that? And so there's an artist that I'm obsessed with now named Cameron Rowland, who in 2019 won the MacArthur Grant. He is known kind of at first, he was known for his ready-made series. And it's not officially known as like rental at cost, but that's the defining feature of it. And it largely brought attention to the prison industrial complex through things like um, he, they're ready-mades. So he would get objects like an office, a federal office desk that was made at Attica because most federal office furniture and desks and things are made by prisoners for like 16 cents an hour max, not the minimum wage, and then sold well under cost back to the federal government. So they are complicit. A lot of things Cameron Rowland does is links, and I'll link this in the show notes, has a really good manifesto summing up the history of how the link of slavery right to the prison industrial complex and how that kind of keeps going. So desks, um, courtroom benches, protective gear for firefighters in California, things like that. And he just gets them from the prisons that makes them. And then the idea is that collectors and galleries, they're called rental at cost because they can only rent them. These are works that can never be bought and owned, period. They can be rented from him, the artist. And so I think that's interesting because then there is that intrinsic value, which is such a problem where we buy it from an artist and at a pretty sell low it. cost yeah. and sell it for so much more that gets yoinked and it's genius to me. So it's in a ton of collections, but they are all rented. You can only rent these objects, collectors, galleries, whoever, whatever can only. And they do? Like, are they? And they do. 
This is the thing. It's so impressive. His ability to have galleries and museums and collectors do what he says and meet the limits or criteria he places on them. That's a rare thing. And he has that power and he does it again and again and again. And I'm really impressed by that because these are ways to take some money out of the system, to actually take and extract value out of a system that in many ways is only about inflating value. It's all surplus value. So yeah, his work is, the main. he has a lot of work, but the main driving force of it is critiquing systems and institutions that you know, perpetuate or benefit from racial injustice. And largely he does focus on um, prison systems and the prison industrial complex. And so some other examples, he did a whole series where he looked at everything the Museum of Contemporary Art in LA owns and called it Mocha Real Estate Acquisition, revealed the whole history of how that, that museum specifically benefited from racist systems like redlining and said, here's how you got your money and here's what you would be worth and how you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. And so again, I thought of this work in relation to take the money and run because of how artists do have power in economic systems in, in various ways. The art world is a huge powerhouse of wealth and wealthy people, right? Go look at some names on museums. I think last week, last fortnight, I screamed, give me a museum, Jeff Bezos, you fuck. But like, go look at the names on collections. Go look at the names of museums. They're not a lot of like lefty Bernie Sanders types. There's a lot of like very conservative, terrible folks. There's a lot of war crime committers, a lot of opioid epidemic committers, helpers in museums and galleries. So for him to put demands on those people and these institutions in the name of social justice, or at the very least drawing attention to the racist past, I think, and then is good, but then he does like redistribute that wealth or at least drains it from them in very real ways, even if they're small. One of, um, another way he did this was he had a gallery show at D37 in LA. It was one of his first solo shows and they threw a ton of money at him. He was a MacArthur winner, do what you want. And one of the things he did was the show itself, when it opened, mainly consisted of a series of legal documents and contracts because he took the budget for the solo show and bought an acre of land on a Disto Island, which is in South Carolina. And then he restricted the use of that land and didn't do anything with it and devalued it until the current market value indicates that acre of land is worth $0. And he does this because of the empty promise placed on that area, right, in 1865, which stated that slaves would receive 40 acres and a mule, and that included Odesto Island, and that initiative was rescinded a year later, 1866, by Andrew Johnson. So he's making commentary about that and trying to, and I don't know if he's done that again, but this buying up land and bringing the value of that land to zero by doing nothing to it, making it unusable for planting anything on. And I think that's really interesting. He also, I won't go into the details of it. It's really complicated, but I like how he really works with the legal system and does hold institutions and museums really legally to it. Like there are real contracts drawn up. 
there's a museum in the UK where all the mahogany in the museum, he's put a lien on. And he says, eventually you won't be able to pay this. And they're like, cool, cool, cool. But like that has, that may have very real implications for them. And another example of this, he has a really detailed and carefully researched essay about it that I'm not going to read verbatim, but talks about um, Atna, an insurance company. Oh, I that, know them. Uh, that were around forever and and had enslaved slave owners could put insurance policies on their slaves um, if they died or got sick. And they still, right, they still benefit from that money from those policies. And he bought a ton of shares of stock from Atna and through a complicated system is um, really working with various senators and Congress people about reparations and saying, you know, a lot of people say that Atna and things like that are where reparations can and should come from. These like insurance policies put on slaves and so he's bought a ton of stocks and basically in the event that federal financial reparations are granted to African-American descendants of slaves, the accrued value of that trust that he has right now will be paid to the U.S. federal agency in charge of distribution of reparations. Wow. What's so, Say his name again. Cameron Rowland. Cameron. Cameron Rowland. So that's my research. In the face of someone saying, I'm a, I'm messing with the system. Like, he really nah. is. But there is, and I was like, I can't think of someone who is. And then I found out about Cameron Rowland and he really is. So, and it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do because, oh, they just want to add value. They just want to add value to anything. Anything an artist makes in various ways. Once an artist is like capital A artist, right? I'm sure anyone who's like a struggling artist out there is rolling their eyes at me and saying, well, I'm not getting money thrown at me to do these things. But once the market has said, you are an artist we can profit off of, then it's almost impossible to stop that profit machine. So. shouted oh I'm messing with the system and I I it's it's not exactly that but I feel like our wrap-up is going to include the phrase messing with the system because okay let's get into it let's look at because like as you I was like whoa whoa is this gonna be the fastest one ever because like I think I think we're real close as long as it's not look at things differently (laughs) have you considered taking a different perspective listeners Michelle that's so thoughtful. Delilah. I just want to sit with that. Ooh, Delilah. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So we had my weird thing, which was about the use of the word gather going from being so minimal that you could have a Google alert for it to overwhelming us when we banned it. And my weird thing was the Manitou Springs Emma Crawford coffin raises. My pop culture thing was mostly ranting about the romantic comedy Brand New Old Love, but loosely about the loser millennial trope and how if you're going to make millennials all losers in your movies, you need to give some reason for that beyond the fact that they are millennials. Yeah. And mine was Grimes's paparazzi photo shoot with the Communist Manifesto. 
My research thing started with the scanning of fat bears with lasers and turned into a discussion of non-invasive wildlife observations and what that means. And then my research thing was the artist Cameron Rowland, who I think is doing a better job of what take the money and run artist Jens Hengling is saying he is doing. So the I'm messing with the system part definitely fits for the your your research thing Cameron Roland I think yeah. it fits with the animals you know like it, whether or not you are messing with the system like are you messing with the natural system or are you avoiding messing with the system well they messed with the system of how things are done in order not to mess with the system of animal system and Grimes is <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know what system is what but she wants to mess she with wants it. to mess with that system <laughs> oh yeah um, I, I think that, I mean, the reason we have the coffin race is because they did not bury her in a traditional plot. They messed with that system. And so she rolled on down the hill in her coffin. And the the gathering, the idea that a gathering is always political and that, um, we have fallen into these using these templates as we, we need to mess with that system is basically the argument of that researcher, Priya Parker, saying that we are we have fallen into a kind of rote, um, perfunctory way of having gatherings and that we need to we need to mess it up some. So I think I messing feel like with it's that. not only a fortune cookie, but a call to action this week. <laughs> mess with the system. Can it just be messed with the system? I feel like it needs it needs it needs a, a bit of a wrinkle, right? Like it can't just be messed with the system. With the system. <laughs> I like that. Just pure anarchy. We don't know <laughs> for good or for bad. Is, you it, is it like mess with the system before it messes with you? I don't know. Or I don't like know if the system is messing back in any of these situations too much. Except it's always messing with us. I mean, it, it wouldn't be a system if it wasn't, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's already, though, it's too late. It's always messing with us. You can't mess with it before it messes with you. Mm. So I'm going to say no to that. Okay, no to that one. Okay, but I can't. it cannot just be mess with the system. You can say no to my short one. That's okay. fine. Okay. Mess with the system. It's, do we need like an, like... How, how do you mess with this? Like mess with the system? Excitedly mess with, mess with the system. Mess with the system. Okay, so knowingly, because maybe like Grimes doesn't really know the systems. And like and, and where does the the one that we haven't kind of connected in here is the millennial trope thing. Like, I mean, I guess that which would be knowingly, because they don't the people writing it, we don't think no millennials. Okay. Know the system you're messing with. Know the you system you're it. messing with. Know the system you're messing with. That, That's yes. so good because yeah, the artist yeah. guy was like, Oh, I'm messing with the system. I'm like, you don't know the system well enough, you're playing into it. Yep. And then the other guy really knew the systems and had smart writing. There, know the system you're messing with before you mess with it. Know the system you're messing with before you, yes, that's it. Check, done. That was the fastest one yet. Perfect. Good job, Michelle. High five. Cyber five. Yep. <laughs> this is, yes, listeners, this is fun for you. <laughs> We're just, yeah, we are uh, just <laughs> gesturing our open palms at each other. Think <laughs> camera, green glows. <laughs>
Uh, um, we'll be back. You should send us grab bags to angrymentpodcast at gmail.com. For those of you who don't know, a grab bag, it can be any one of these categories. You can record it. You can type it and we'll read it out. You can even come live on the show if you want um, and give us a category. Give us, throw us a curveball. We're obviously getting too good at this. Did you see how fast we did that? I know. Try to mess this up. Maybe mess just, with this system. Yes. You know the system. You're listening to this podcast. Now <laughs> mess with it. We want to be messed with. All right. Goodbye, Goodbye. everybody. Thank you for listening. 